remember a few weeks back me saying, you see, we've been in kind of this impromptu, unintentional mini-series that included Abram and Lot. Uh, I didn't plan on that being a series. It's just that the Lord kept feeding into me. And so I decided to keep it going in the sanctuary. How many of you during that last message that I gave about Abram and Lot, Joyce, hi. (laughs) How are you, dear? Tim, it's good to see you, my brother. Great to have you guys in the house. How many of you remember me saying that I got hung up on Genesis chapter 14 and I just could not make heads or tails of it and I just couldn't make sense of it? How many of you remember that? Okay, well, um, we're about to find out this morning whether I've made sense of it. Okay, I'm just going to give you a... This is just mini teaching right here. When the pastor says something like that, that's when you laugh. Okay, that was lame, but I'll take it. Genesis chapter 14. We're going to be talking this morning. uh, And what I have found is while I'm studying this chapter, there is multiple sermons in this chapter. Okay? There's just plain old-fashioned multiple messages here. But this morning, we're going to be... Uh, speaking on something that I have entitled, because sermons are always supposed to have titles, a question of character. A question of character. Now, I am, to those of you who do not know me and who are visiting, uh, I am as much a Bible study kind of guy as I am anything else. So we're going to do, we're going to look at this, get a load of this now. Don't anybody get afraid. The entire chapter of the 14th chapter of Genesis. There are 24 verses in it. We are not going to go verse by verse uh, exegetically. We are going to encompass the entire chapter, however. Now I want you to look at Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. And I want you to look at what it says. At this time, at this time, what time is that? I don't know what time that is because the watch I'm wearing right now is not working. It looks really good, but it doesn't work. And I have yet to find someone who can figure it out. At this time, what has just happened? Well, if you'll think back a few weeks ago, what actually just happened? This is, this is right after in Genesis 13 where Abram and Lot, Uncle Abram and nephew Lot, have parted company. Abram has gone into the promise of God. He has moved into Canaan where God spoke to him that he was to go to a place that God was going to show him and then directed him to Canaan. It was at his arrival in Canaan that God said, see this land, see the length, see the width. All of this is yours and your offspring." So, that's where Abram went. Lot, his nephew, whom he has lived with from Lot's birth. These two men are tight. It's it's as much a relationship of friendship and and co-laborer as it is nephew and uncle. It is an incredibly deep structured relationship. But because of a grazing rights dispute 
that occurs between these two men. Well, actually, it's their shepherds that have the problem with each other. See, these two men, as I've already stated, are very powerful, very wealthy individuals. And when you get that kind of power, that kind of size, that kind of wealth together in close proximity, you're liable to run out of space. Okay? Which is what happened. They are residing between Bethel and Ai, which in terms of distance is about a stone's throw. Literally. And they're living there, they're grazing there, they're making their living. Their shepherds get into a big mad mess with each other and they decide to part company because there's no space for both. And Uncle Abram says, look, Lot, I love you. Love your tongues. Uh, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy. You choose first. Jana, that was one of those times where you laugh. Thank you. All right, we got to laugh out of her. And so Lot, he starts looking over the land. And what mistake does Lot make? But he looks outside the borders of the promise of God and he lands himself on the extreme southern end of the Dead Sea in this incredibly well-watered valley. And he's thinking, that's where we're going to graze. This is going to be a cakewalk. I'm heading down there, uncle. To which Abram says, cool. Abram turns around, looks into the promise, and walks him, his family, and his possessions into the, into the promise of God. 14, verse 1, at this time, after this parting has occurred, after Abram has moved up into where uh, uh, his, his friend... Mamre has these incredible trees, these incredible groves of trees. He moves up in there and he settles down while Lot moves down into the southern tip of the Dead Sea. And he makes his, his uh, living down there in the valley. It was at that time. Shortly after that occurred. At that time, Amphrael, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Kedolamer, Kedorlamer, I'm sorry, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, listen to what it says here, went to war against. Those four kings went to war against the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is also named Zor. We've learned about Zor in past weeks. So there are four kings who decided to make war against five kings. Why? Well, later, or right here, uh, for 12 years, verse 4, for 12 years, they, the five kings, had been subject to Kedorlaomer. But the 13th year, those five kings decided to rebel. They didn't want to be a servant, a subservient to that king. So they rebelled in the 13th year. Now, from verses 5 uh, right on through 7, what you read there, and we don't need to go into it, is that the four kings... Now, I don't know if the three kings, because Kedorlaomer, 
I'm never going to get that pronounced right. I'm just going to forewarn you now. He was the boss. He's the one over all of these kings. The three kings that were sided with him, I don't know if those were also subservient kings that just decided not to rebel. I don't know if they were just an allegiance formed. I have no idea. But in those verses, verses 5 through 7, what happens is that Kedorlaomer, that guy that I can't pronounce, he and his three king pals decide, okay, we've got a rebellion on our hands. What are we going to do? They plow through the land, defeating everything and everybody in their way. And they just move through. It's like he had a Napoleon complex. Nothing was going to stop this man from putting an end to this uprising. And so he just moved through the land, defeating everyone that stood in his way. It was at that point he was heading straight in to the southern tip of the Dead Sea into the plain of Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar and the other two, the five kings. In verse 8, the king of Sodom, Gomorrah, Zeboim, and Bela, Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against the four kings. Okay? So, basically, they got on Facebook and they realized that King Kedelon, that guy... He's moving through the land, and they're not going to sit there in their cities while he's marching directly to them. They, as a group of five kings, these are city-states kinds of things. There's a great big city here. They have a king. The city is the state run by a king. Everybody get it? Those five kings say, well, if we just sit here and wait till he arrives, he's going to breach our cities. He's going to destroy us, and then he's going to move on to you. And when he's done with you, he's going to move over to your town. And when he's done with your town, he's coming over to you. And they decided, okay, well, let's just band together. Let's just get together and meet him on the battlefield. That way we stand a far better chance than if we just sit here and wait for him to arrive. So that's what they do. They draw up their battle lines and they wait um, for... Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, to show up. Four kings against five. Now, verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. Now, the valley of Sidon. Now, what is the valley of Sidon? The valley of Sidon is simply the valley of the Dead Sea. At that time, it was known as the Salt Sea. It's now known as the Dead Sea. That valley was full of tar pits. Now, listen to what happens. And when the king's of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Now, I think the reason that those are the only two of the five that are mentioned is this. The other three have already been vanquished. They're all that's left. So when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, the tar pits, and the rest fled to the hills. Verse 11 is very important. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. And that verse ends with these four words. Then they went away. 
So despite the fact that there was a confederation of five kings against four, they, the five kings didn't stand a chance. And they were utterly destroyed, utterly plowed over by Kedolaomer's war machine, and the two kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they just fled the battlefield. And while their troops, leaderless, were fleeing, some of them died in the tar pits. Others of them headed for the hills, no pun intended, and just disappeared. At which time, the four kings waltzed into the vacant cities and took everything they had, took all the food, and took anybody around their prisoner. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 14. And the funny thing about that is it hasn't mentioned Abram. It hasn't mentioned God. It hasn't mentioned Lot. hasn't mentioned anything. All we've got are these guys that you largely don't hear much about elsewhere, except for a couple of very popular sinful kings who run away. And there's this battle. And everything would have been fine right there. You would have had a bunch of people fighting and squabbling, a bunch of people dying, a bunch of people getting rich off the, the spoils of the land. Everything would have been fine. Kedor Laomer would have marched through the Valley of Sidon, the Valley of the Dead Sea, conquering as he went. He'd have cleaned up and went home. And that would have been the end of the story, not even worthy of mention in the Bible. Not even worthy. But then, at the end of that rather eventless story, we have a problem. And the problem shows up in verse 12. Here's the problem. Right here. A nondescript turf war all of a sudden makes headlines when verse 12 says, they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And suddenly, a non-issue becomes a whopper of an issue. What investment does Abram have in the Valley of Sidon? He has got nothing there that he cares anything about because God promised him Canaan. And that valley sits outside the borders. He's got nothing going on there except one thing. And that one thing was enough to get Abram all worked up. Let's look at this now. Verse 13. Now we're talking about a gentleman here who ran from the battlefield in the valley of Sidon where the tar pits. He didn't get killed in battle. He didn't fall in the tar pits and die there. He actually made it into the hills. And listen to verse 13. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now I'm getting the distinct impression that this guy lived in Sodom or Gomorrah. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, who's a buddy of his, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. Well, 
Verse 14 says, When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went to pursuit as far as Dan. Now, I realize that when we're talking about warfare and multiple city-states and kings and all that, 318 doesn't sound like much, does it? But I want you to understand just how wealthy, powerful, and influential Abram is. He has his own spec ops military to the tune of 318 specialized warriors not hired, born in his household. Do you get the impression how many servants and people he's got with him under his roof? This man is obscenely powerful. And he's trained them to fight himself. How many people went up against the enemy when Gideon was in charge? How many? 300. Sound vaguely familiar? Amazing. So... He takes his 318 men and says, All right, boys, we're going after my nephew. Y'all ready? Suit up. Gone. They're out of camp, heading toward Kitty Leomer. Yeah, his name. During the night, verse 15, Abram divided his men to attack them and routed them, pursuing them as far as Hoba, north of Damascus. What was the result of this? Verse 16, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Okay. Abram, everything would have been fine for the four kings had Abram just not heard about his nephew. But suddenly we've got a guy... Private messaging Abram saying, your boy, he's caught, and these cats are bad. Fine. Suit up, gentlemen. Let's go. They go. They find the four kings. 318 plus Abram plus two of his buddies. 322 individuals go and rout four kings who have just routed five kings and in the previous year laid waste to an entire countryside and 322 people laid waste to the entire force. That's staggering. Well, they get done with all of it. They've destroyed the enemy. They've got everybody and everything back. Interesting, when Abram heard from the escaped soldier what had happened to his nephew, I want you to notice, Abram didn't stop to pray about God's will. Abram didn't send any prayers up. And interestingly, no word came down. What happened? This. The right thing was done 
at the right time. Just action took place by Abram to deliver his nephew from the enemy. Let me ask you a quick question. This has absolutely nothing really to do with the, with the sermon. How many times do we hear about a thing that must be addressed and instead of action, we find out what we're supposed to do when what we're supposed to do is as plain as the nose on your face. How many times do we do that? As a matter of fact, the New Testament tells us that for him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. How many times, listen to me, looking at me, have we prayed our way out of doing what was right? How many times have we stopped long enough to pray to God, Oh dear God, what do I have to do right now? I just don't know. Yes, you do. If you've been in His Word for five minutes, you know the will of God about things that are right and things that are wrong. And if we stop to pray about every last thing that we know should be addressed, we're likely to pray ourselves out of doing the right thing. Because this is the thing we've got ourselves into the habit of doing. We're praying to God, but we're listening to the enemy. And we end up doing nothing at all. And our nephew Lot stays a prisoner of the enemy. When was the last time you knew of a child of God who had fallen prey to the enemy and you prayed about what to do just long enough to do nothing at all instead of going to that relative, which is what the Bible refers to Lot as, when he heard his relative, Right? Instead of going, okay, that's a problem. Time to hit the road. Get there and do something. Instead of praying our way out of God's will. No prayers went up. No words came down. Nothing more than action took place. And Lot was delivered from the hands of the enemy by his uncle. Amazing. Amazing. Now, let's just look at what Abram did here. He went on the attack with 322, including himself. Now, I don't think that his, his compadres here, um, Mamre, Aner, and Eshkol, I don't think they brought troops with them because the end of the chapter would suggest they didn't. But... The 322 went, led by Abram, defeated the four kings, acquired, now listen carefully, they acquired everything that the four kings were carrying. And they acquired everything that the four kings had acquired from the five kings. 
And they acquired everything that the four kings had acquired in the campaigns prior to fighting the five kings. Do you have any earthly idea the staggering amount of goods and treasure that were there? And it was all because of Abram. Now I want you to think, this is a powerful, wealthy man. And he has just acquired everything that I just enumerated. He acquires it all. Look at verse 17. And after Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer, the kings uh, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. The valley of Shaveh here is also known as the valley or the king's valley. Where is the valley of Shaveh? Where is the king's valley? Well, today it's known as the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley lies directly between the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Between the eastern side of the holy city and the Mount of Olives is a depression known as the Kidron Valley. And that, on his way home, is where the king of Sodom meets Abram. Interesting. Now, the king of Sodom, everybody basically knows about Sodom, right? It's just not the place you take your family to vacation, right? It's just not the place that's the most wonderful place on earth. Is that what Disney World says? The most, the, the most magical or whatever? That's not Sodom. That's not Gomorrah. That's not the cities in the Sidon Valley, south of the Dead Sea. That's not what these places are. Sodom is symbolic for wickedness, for idolatry, immorality, pride, and prosperity. Sodom is known for that, and it is symbolic of all those things. And listen to me. Jerusalem, listen to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is symbolic of the eternal city of God where the dwelling place of not only God is, but God's people. The Mount of Olives is described because of what it's known for, the olive tree. The olive tree is symbolic of the anointing. So listen to this. The man of God goes and delivers his family member, destroys everybody, takes everything, this massive, unimaginable amount of treasure and goods from the defeated kings, and he's on his way home. And where does the king of wickedness meet Abram, the man of God? He meets him between the dwelling place of God and His people and the anointing of God. That's where the devil wants to meet you. Between the dwelling place you possess in God and the anointing that should follow. And that's where your character is going to come into question. Between the dwelling place of God and the anointing. How deeply do you dwell and how greatly are you anointed? You're going to find out when the king of wickedness shows up.
and your character is going to be put to the test. Now, isn't it funny how the opening verses of this chapter are like, what's the point of Genesis 14 until we get here? Now we get the point. Because the devil is going to meet you between where you live with God and the anointing of God on your life. And that's where he's going to try to make a deal with you. Fascinating how that is. When the, the serpent, the Bible says the most subtle of all creation, meets you between God's will and your character in choice making. It's amazing how familiar that is. Now we know that back in the garden, that whole thing tanked. That didn't end up very well. But here, in the Kidron Valley, between the east wall of Jerusalem, which in this time period is known as Salem, between the eastern wall of Salem and the Mount of Olives, the king of Sodom came out to meet Abram. <laughs> How many of you have been there? I want you to think about what I'm asking you. How many of you have been between the dwelling place of God in your life and the anointing He has on you? And right there, right down the center of the two, the enemy of your soul shows up and tries to cut a deal with you. How many of you have lived there? How many of you have ever been there? Well, you know what happens when that shows up, when those circumstances show up, the next thing that occurs. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek. It's when Melchizedek shows up. King of Salem. King of peace. That's when he shows up. And in all of his glory and in all of his power, he exits his city. And he shows up in the valley by, by, right beside the anointing of God. And this is what he does. He brings out bread. And he brings out wine to you. And what is bread? Bread is symbolic of life. And the wine, the wine is symbolic of teaching. And Melchizedek shows up in your time of need. And he walks out and he presents you with life and learning. And by his very presence, by his very presence, what looked like was staged for disaster changes. Continuing in verse 18, he was priest of God Most High and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Not a prayer went up, and not a word came down from heaven. But when action was taken to do the right thing, 
God showed up in the valley of decision between His dwelling place and His anointing, confronted the enemy of your soul, and blesses you for what you've done and who you are. And right here, at the end of verse 20, we just take statements like this one sentence and we go, oh, okay. And we build a doctrine around it which is accurate, but we never really, Mary, look into what actually happened. Then Abram, last sentence of verse 20, gave him a tenth of everything. everything. Do you remember what he acquired on this little field trip? Do you remember what he had amassed in this excursion? Do you remember how much he acquired as a result of this engagement? All because of his nephew decided to, to get into the real estate business in the worst possible place on planet Earth. And yet... Between the dwelling place of God and the anointing of God, Abram receives a blessing from God and pays tithe on everything. What must a tenth of that look like? What must that have looked like? Well then... With all this happening, look at verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. <laughs> Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now, let's remember where part of these goods came from. They came from Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. Which we know, in several chapters to come, is utterly eliminated by God's hand because of the sin and the terrible things that are going on. I'm coming to a close. I promise you. I promise. And this is what Abram says. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshel, Mamre. Let them have their share. Now, why is that even important? Because it makes a good story? No. Abram has acquired everything that he acquired in battle. He shows up. The valley between God's dwelling place and the anointing, Melchizedek, comes out. He pays a tenth of all of that, including the stuff that came from Sodom and Gomorrah. He paid tithe and then turns around when offered the entire amount, just take it and go, give me my people back. He says, I've, 
there's not a snowball's chance that I'm going to keep what is yours because I will never accept your wicked, evil way telling people that you made me rich as opposed to God. And yet what Abram did was pay tithe on what he never intended on keeping and was offered all of it by the owner. This is a question of character. Does everybody grasp that? Christianity finds its validity. It finds its origin in Jesus Christ. It finds its validity in how you decide to live it out. Because here's the thing. We can walk around in our life calling ourselves Christians, calling ourselves saints of God, but when we take bribes from the devil because it's so good looking, that isn't Christianity and it is not kingdom of God. That's the reality. It is not Christianity when we entertain the enemy. And Abram showed exactly what kind of man he was. Number one, he obeyed God with the call of God when he still lived in Ur, some thousand plus miles away from the promise of God. He proved that he had an ear for God when he was living around the Chaldeans who are anybody but God worshipers. And he makes that trek, proves to God who he is receives the word from him on two additional occasions. This is the land. When the division came between him and his nephew, where did Abram go? Into the promise of God. When Lot's poor choice got him into trouble, he reacted, he responded, he moved in action to deliver his family member from the enemy. And then, when he had amassed Fort Knox. He paid tithe to the Most High God and got rid of everything back to the wicked and evil king. He showed himself exactly who he was. A man of character and a matter of integrity. A man of integrity. This is a chapter that discusses a question of character. In the lives of of the children of God. We can't dwell at the city gates of Salem between Salem and the, 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 the Mount of Olives between the anointing and the dwelling place of God and accept from the devil what the devil would have for you. Jesus was baptized by His cousin in the Jordan River. A dove came down upon Him, lit on Him. The voice of God spoke, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And from that point forward, Jesus walked out of the Jordan and into the wilderness for an extended time of fasting. And what did, what did, the, what did the devil do? Tempted him. If you will but bow down to me and worship me, look at everything I will give you. And what did Jesus say? Uh, no. Jesus was between the dwelling place of God 
and the anointing. Because remember, when he resisted the devil, he left the wilderness full of the power of God. Ladies and gentlemen, your Christianity is all a question of character. Are you who you say you are? As a church, church, are we who we say we are? We have some killer examples to live by. And I would dare say that on this journey that you and I are taking, He is developing us and He is transforming us into what the New Testament says is the very image of the Son of God. Transforming us into that image. You remember. Remember, Abram. You dwell, if you are saved, you are dwelling in the dwelling place of God. If you are that individual, God has an anointing for you to function with. And if you don't understand that, you open your Bible to the book immediately past the last gospel, the gospel of John, and you open up to the first chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. The second book that, that Luke wrote, and you find out exactly what God has planned for you in terms of power and anointing. You are in the Kidron Valley. You dwell with God and He has an anointing for you. And if you want to see how it came about, you keep reading until you get to Acts chapter 2. That's for you. When you are there, and the deal of a lifetime comes down the road and tells you, you I have got things for the, you that you cannot even imagine. All you have to do is just move out of the Kidron Valley. Move away from the dwelling place of God and move away from the anointing of God. And brother, you can't imagine what I've got waiting for you, says the enemy of your soul. But the question of character is settled when you say, I have raised my hand and I have given my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and I don't want the slightest thing from you, devil. I don't want anything you have. I don't want anything that you say you have. You have nothing for me. I have died to myself, come alive to Jesus Christ, and that's who I am. Get thee behind me, Satan. Stand with me this morning. We're going to call it a morning. Hallelujah. God is good. He is good. And this morning, I want you to understand something. That God is not only good, but He is in hot pursuit of us. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... The Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, the third chapter, it speaks and it makes a picture of Jesus Christ. He's speaking to one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And he says of them, I am standing at your door. And I knock. And if you'll open that door to me, I'm going to come into you. And you and I, we're going to sit down and we're going to have supper together. 
And if you've ever had supper, who here has ever had supper with Jesus? So most of you have never had supper with Jesus. Okay, um, I'm going to need help getting these pews back because we got way too many lost folk in this house. If you have accepted the Son of God, Franklin, as your Lord and Savior, you had supper with Jesus. He knocked, you opened the door, He came in. And that's where we live, the dwelling place of God. And now it's time for the anointing of God. But if you don't know Jesus, you need to. You need to come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Is there anyone in this house who doesn't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you don't, the only reason, and I say this a lot, that He came to earth, the only reason that God became flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, the only reason that happened is because of John, the third chapter. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever doesn't matter how you look, doesn't matter what race, creed, or color you are. It doesn't matter if you wear tattoos and earrings. It doesn't matter if you look like you're as clean as the driven snow. If you fall into the category of whosoever, He will save you. And if you don't know Him, He died to know you. Bow your heads with me today. First of all, Father, I want to thank you.